Hello. Welcome to um, Better Than Yesterday. If you're listening to this, uh, you've downloaded the show and I'm grateful that you did because um, I'm here uh, to make a podcast for you. But um, I don't make it alone. I make it with Andy and Rachel and uh, they're very good at what they do so I have to pay them for what they do. So uh, I play ads on this show. So you might be about to hear an ad. So if you hear an ad, thank you because you're helping me pay Andy and Rach. And then we'll get on with the show. Simon Griffiths. All right, here we go. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. When you go from one country to another, you cross an invisible line and where you were born on either side of that invisible line, that will ultimately have a huge impact on what happens for your whole life. And that seems really crazy. And then you kind of play that out, whether you're born in Australia or you know the USA versus Mexico, like particularly in Southeast Asia, that has massive, massive impacts on what happens. And to me, that inequality just seems like something that we can solve and we can improve over time. And so that was kind of what I was really intrigued by. How do we shift the needle? How do you give someone the opportunity that we're given by being born in somewhere like Australia or in my case, the UK? That was the co-founder and head honcho of Who Gives a Crap? Simon Griffiths. And this is episode 373 of Better Than Yesterday. Welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osha Ginsberg. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate you being a part of the show. This is a bi-weekly podcast that aims to make you uh, make today better than yesterday. That's it. Something you hear on the show today, something you hear on every show. It's going to help you make today better than yesterday. All right? I'm here twice a week. Mondays, I'm here with a guest. Fridays, I'm here with you. And that's what we're here to do, make today better than yesterday. Thanks so much for sending me the emails. Always love to see where, where you are watching, looking at the show what you are looking at when you're listening to the show. Man, my head. Great to uh, hear from you. Send off your email at gmail.com. That's my email address or just tag me on Instagram. 
And thanks also for all the support of Dad Pod Season 3, which is out now. Thank you very, very much. Uh, so I've got a slightly personal question. Did you poo today? Did you did you poo? If you didn't, I'm pretty sure you will do a poo today. And when you do do your poo, do you think you might be able to do some good with your poo while you were on the loo? Hmm? Well, my guest today, Simon Griffiths, is all about making those things happen for you. Yes, indeed. Before we get to Simon Griffiths, if conversations about people who started companies that try to do good while they make something good to make your day more good tickle your fancy, you may appreciate episode 85 all the way back to double figures with Ido Leffler. Ido is the co-founder of Yes to Carrots. He also started up Yubi, Cheeky, and Brandless. He's a very, very clever man, a lovely human being. He's always had a give at the center of his business strategies. And if you'd scroll all the way back in the feed, the old theme song and everything, back to episode 85, that's where you can hear Edo. Here's just a taste of that chat. My biggest fear is looking back, not in 30 years' time or 40 years' time, but in 10 years' time, in five years' time, and going, shit, what a waste of time. Life's too short to have a sucky day and to have multiple sucky days. If you're sick, you do something about it. So if you've got something, whether it's a relationship that you've tried to fix and it can't be fixed, or a job that you hate going to every day, you have that power to make your no life become a yes life. And that is a matter of flicking a switch. Sure, there might be collateral damage along the way. Sure, there might be some hardship times. But if you know that you have a path to lead you to something that makes you happy, why would you live another day or another week or another month having a sucky day? It's just not worth it. It's a long way back. Uh, sometime in 2015, I'd only just met Audrey, I think. We did the chat in Manhattan Beach. Look, it's a fantastic chat. Episode 85 with Edo Leffler. So let me tell you about my guest today. Simon Griffiths is the co-founder and head honcho of Who Gives a Crap. It says head honcho in his business card. Who Gives a Crap is a sustainable and ethical toilet paper company. Launched in 2013, and I even remember the launch because Simon did a, in the kind of more early days of live streaming, he live streamed himself sitting on a toilet nonstop for 50 straight hours until he had pre-sold all of his first, the initial order of Who Gives a Crap over 50,000 bucks worth of toilet paper. And they did it. He had got a very cold bottom doing it, but he did it. Since then, Who Gives a Crap has tripled in size. It's not bad. Not bad for a business that's only seven years old. And even so, they still donate 50% of their profits to help build toilets in developing countries. Now, you may just think, oh, yeah, building toilets in developing countries. But hang on a second. Take just a few moments to think about what would your life be like without a toilet? Yeah, think about it. That porcelain contraption somewhere in your house directly connected through an intricate series of pipes to a treatment facility which takes all of the poo and wee and bodily waste away from you, where you live, where you cook, where you eat, where you sleep. You've probably had a toilet inside your house your entire life if you're listening to this show. If you've never had a toilet or if you've ever not had a toilet inside your house, just a shovel on a roll and a tree, you'll know what kind of a hassle it is if you don't have a toilet. And how your day goes when that's what you're working with and what you can achieve if a shovel and a hole and a toilet roll on a tree is what you've got to work with, if that. So 
just consider the outcomes of people, millions and millions and millions and millions of people around this planet that do not have what you have. Think about how you work, how you go to school, how you care for your family, how you cook, how you clean, how you eat, what it's like when you're sick, if you're not a man, what it's like if you're having a period. What's it like to live without a toilet? Okay? <laughs> what can you do without access to a device that can carry potentially hazardous waste away from you and your family and your kitchen and where you live? We take toilets for granted because they've always been there. But without one, you're going to have a pretty hard time doing what you're doing right now. I couldn't have had the day I've had today if there weren't toilets available to me readily within 100 meters of everywhere I've been standing today. And in a time of panic buying toilet paper, I mean, goodness, who better to talk to than the head honcho of a toilet paper company? Full disclosure, uh, here at our place, we are and have been a who gives a crap household for a couple of years now. And so I was extraordinarily chuffed when Simon's team reached out and asked if he could be on the podcast. I was like, fuck yeah. I think about him every day, literally every day when I wipe my bum because I wipe my bum. Because look, let's be honest, there's a lot of talk about poo on this show, but don't pretend you don't poo because you do. I know you do. I poo, you poo, everybody poos. Read the book if you don't believe me. There's a book. It's called Everybody Poos. You can find out more about Simon's great work, whogivesacrap.org. Enjoy this chat with the marvellous, generous-hearted Simon Griffiths. I'm so grateful uh, we can talk today. Uh, We are very big fans of your work in our house, let me tell you that. Uh, yeah, awesome. <laughs> yeah, man. Who Gives a Crap is one of those Australian brands that is just absolutely wonderful. It's it's so perfectly uh, Australian what it is and it speaks a lot to what I feel personally is, is what we are as, as a community. You know, we talk a lot about how we're Australians, we'd like to help out. And there's a lot of that that we don't see uh, from our leaders particularly, but for a company like Who Gives a Crap, it definitely is, man. And it's really exciting. We get the mega box. Yep. And a lot of the fun at our place is Tetrising all of those toilet paper rolls away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awesome to hear. You know, that's that's what we're going for. So it's amazing to hear that sort of resonating. So yeah. Well, you. it's great. And the, I think the brand, um, the communication of the brand and the language of the brand and the personality of the brand shows through and shines through and it's bloody great. I, I remember, I think I used my first roll would have been right after you did that live stream in the in the yeah. start of live streaming. God, awesome. how long ago was that now? <laughs> yeah, like eight years ago. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, that's amazing. So you would have been one of our very first customers. I apologize for the, the quality on that oh. first production run. <laughs> it's fine. No, no, no. It wasn't me. It was Mel Nahas, who's uh, an extraordinary. Oh, awesome. Yeah, do you know her? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it was Mel, it was Mel Nahas that ordered it, and I was staying at her house. I was down here for something. I can't remember what it was, but I, I used to stay at her house when I came to Sydney out of LA. And she goes, here, I got this. And I said, what is it? He goes, oh, it's this guy. He sat on a toilet for I don't know how many hours, but he said he wouldn't get off until he got enough money to, to start <laughs> it and make it go. Yeah, Mel, Mel's great. I see her over in LA a little bit. So we we kind of spend a few months of the year over there usually, not this year. But yeah, try to catch up with her each year. She's awesome. So for people who, who maybe just heard about the brand and they don't quite know about it, how old, how old, actually, you know what? Let's go right back. Let's take everyone back to the start. What was your first toilet like at your house when you grew up? 
Um, that's a, you know, one of the, the weird things, actually, I've never said this out loud. One of the weird things is that one of my very first memories is being potty trained. <laughs> and I remember sitting on like a, a potty. So that's probably like my very first toilet ever. Did you have the song? Because a lot of times people sing a song for the kid. Yeah, I don't think so. I can't remember. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. I can't remember. But I must have been, I remember um, my family's all British and we moved to Australia when I was four. And this is from, uh, you know, memory from a house in England. So I must have been, you know, like two and a half, three or something. Wow. Yeah, so I can't remember the song. I just remember that that potty. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so uh, after that, yeah, my first toilet, I guess. Um, Toilets have come a long way, man, because, I mean, I'm a little older than you, but there were still some pretty scary toilets going around when we were kids. Yeah, I think so. And, and I think what's interesting is like the potty as well. That's, that's a, a Western concept. You know, that's not, it doesn't exist so much in a lot of parts of the world. And that means that kids often go outside and kind of squat down outside and, you know, baby poops actually got more pathogens in it than adult poop. So people kind of think it's quite innocent, but it's actually not such a good thing for, for kids to be doing that. <laughs> wow. So you're, uh, you know, we all kind of graduate. We get the little step ladder so we can get up on the big toilet. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is before soft clothes toilets. So they're always big, loud, frightening seats, perspex see-through seats with 50 cent pieces in them and weird seats that had cushions on them. I never understood the cushiony seat, man. <laughs> what, I mean, what about in the UK? What gets me is like the carpet right up to the toilet. What is that about? Like, yeah. Do you live with like men? The carpet that goes on top of the carpet that's like shaped to go around the toilet. <laughs> I don't understand. I mean, at least you can wash that, but it still terrifies me. Yeah. I've been in a couple of houses that have had the carpet right up to the edge of the toilet. Like, come on, people drink in the house and unless every man sits down to pee, this is just a recipe for disaster. Yeah. What are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? The, the story goes that you went for a bit of a travel and you had a bit of a look. What was it that was the moment when you went, hang on, I grew up with something that everybody has. That's probably a moment that a lot of people have when they spend a little, you know, even the smallest amount of time in the developing world usually. And I didn't think that that much of it at, at the start. And it was kind of, for me, the whole concept, everything we do is this very slow build over time of like assuming things are the way that they are and not really questioning it. And then after time sort of thinking about it and saying, hey, like what? why is it like that? Why does it need to be that way? And eventually coming around to this idea of maybe we can do it differently and maybe we can make things different for other people too. Because the numbers are quite staggering. We do take it for granted. I mean, we it's just what we as humans do. We assume that what we have is what everybody has. You know, it can get quite toxic and, you know, turn into privilege. And then, you know, when people in leadership positions go, well, of, well, of course, with negative gear, our third investment property, if everybody I know does it. Like, <laughs> that's, you know, because their immediate community, everyone around them, they have, you know, they don't, can't conceive that life could be very different for others. But yeah. what does it do for, I mean, it, it's a simple toilet. It's a simple ability to eliminate the waste out of your body away from where you cook and eat. Yeah. When you can't do that, what does it do for your, expected outcomes, not only in health, but as far as job, education, safety? Yeah, I mean, it does, it does a lot and in a lot of different ways. And that starts from really young kids. So diarrhea-related disease is the second largest killer of kids under the age of five. 
that's pretty bad. That's like many hundreds of thousands of, of kids under the age of five that don't, don't get beyond five because of that every year. Um, so that's kind of where it starts at the beginning. And then I think, then you think about what's happening at school. So kids are sick. They're not able to go to school as much. Teenage girls don't have anywhere private to go to school. And so they're often missing a week of school a month because there's nowhere to go. And then that kind of goes into what's happening in the community, people potentially being afraid to like walk away from women in particular, afraid to walk away from their house to go from to the bathroom in the bushes. So there's a lot of kind of impacts there as well. And then in general kind of healthiness and well-being, people are sick more often. So productivity suffers, people don't live as long. So economic prosperity suffers. So the health impacts are like really far reaching for all ages, right through, you know, from infants, right through to, to much older people too. So it's really a big, big, big problem. <laughs> and one that when you've grown up with a toilet, you just don't think about. And how much of the, the world are we talking about? Yeah, about 40% of the entire world. So you know, over 2 billion people at this point that don't have access to adequate sanitation. And yeah, like, again, if, if anyone who's spent a little bit of time in the developing world has probably been exposed to it and just sort of passed it off as barley belly or, you know, whatever, however kind of they want to think about it. But the reality is that that's every day for a very large chunk of the world. Yeah, there's a there's a name for it in every uh, in every country. There's the yeah. the what is it? Uh, the Montezuma's Revenge is what they call it in Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> and there's one in India that I can't remember, but that is staggering. Two billion people. Yeah, that's absolutely staggering. And what's the point? Now I'm I'm guessing that there's a few levels. There's going out to the bushes to poo and pee, and then there's the kind of outhouse, like just a hole in the ground. Yep. And then there's the in-house, out-house where it's a bucket inside the house that you take outside to empty. Where's the level where things start to change? The outhouse is actually pretty good. Like that's that's where things start to get a lot better. The trick there is that, you know, you need to do water, sanitation and hygiene education all at the same time because if you've got an outhouse but you're not washing your hands, then you're about as tenth as effective as when you do all three of those things together. And mm-hmm. so... Yeah, you really need to kind of do what's called wash, so water, sanitation, and hygiene education all together. And when you do those three things, you're about 10 times as effective as when you just do any single one of them. Um, And so the outhouse is great, but you need to make sure that you've then got the ability for people to wash their hands, have access to clean water, and understand the importance of doing those things. And so a big challenge in some places is the education around like why people are getting sick and they think that it's come from a place that's entirely different to where it's actually coming from. And so to break that kind of stigma and yeah, really educate people is, is a big part of that whole process. Because you don't just make really excellent toilet paper and bear in mind <laughs> that we're fancy. So we get the bamboo one. Where, Ooh, la la. <laughs> oh yeah, mate. We are high grade, <laughs> high grade at our place. And, and we get the paper towels as well, which are absolutely killer. You don't just make these products what you do with the money is is a large part of the work that you do. How do you go about implementing that? Do you, do you work with partners in local areas? How does it work? Yeah, so, so as you sort of alluded to, we donate half of our profits and that's we, and we use that to help build toilets. That's the, honestly the reason why we exist. Like if the sanitation problem wasn't there, our company wouldn't be here today. And so we kind of looked at that problem and realized that the kind of amount of funding being directed to sanitation wasn't huge, but also you'd never be able to reach the level that you needed to just relying on the straight philanthropy market. And so we thought, 
we could tap into the money that's changing hands in the economy through the purchase of goods and services and, and hit on toilet paper and was like, this is awesome because it's a product that we all use every day. But when you look at how it's marketed, it's like puppies, pillows and feathers rather than what it's actually related to and what it's used for. So let's have a conversation about that and let's kind of talk about the elephant in the room here and this problem that exists, you know, all around the world that we're not so exposed to here in, in Australia and, and, you know, the US or the UK and lots of other parts of the Western world. And yeah, have a conversation about it and, and actually try and solve this problem by using toilet paper, which is something that we all need. And so that's kind of, yeah, how it came together. But you do, you, you work with people who are like in these countries, I'm assuming you don't have your own teams on the ground or yep. do you work with partners? What we decided was, you know, we are the experts at making and selling this toilet paper, but there's better people out there who we think can do a much better job in terms of the actual impacts of building toilets and providing the education around why they're important. And so we could find the best partners globally, fund them based on track record and allow them to do amazing work and allocate the capital that we're giving to them in the most efficient manner. Um, and so we work now with yeah, about five partners globally, our biggest of which is WaterAid, who we work with, WaterAid Australia and WaterAid USA in kind of, you know, Australia and the US's closest neighbours. Um, so with Australia, that's, you know, East Timor, Papua New Guinea, Cambodia, kind of the regions we work in. We sort of think about how we fund almost like a, a share portfolio where you've got some blue chip stocks that you put a lot of your kind of your money into. And for us, that's WaterAid because they're reliable and, and really, you know, do a great job at what they do. But then we also fund some higher risk, higher return stuff that has the potential to blow it out of the water, but it might not work. And so for us, that's an organization in Kenya that we love called Sanergy. And they do some really cool stuff in the urban slums of Nairobi where they have these above ground toilets that, you know, the slums, you can't plumb them. So um, you have to actually have above ground toilets where the waste gets collected and carried out in tubs. And so you have like a tub you can screw a lid onto. You carry it out on a, a trolley, load it onto a truck and it gets taken off site for, for processing where they basically use black soldier flies to consume the waste that's mixed up, you know, restaurant waste and turn it into something they can sell. So fertilizer or chicken feed once it's all been boiled up and made pathogen free. So it's like alchemy of waste, which is kind of like amazing. And if this works, you know, if they can show that they can bring the cost of providing sanitation down to about $10 per head, then basically it becomes cheaper for the Kenyan government to fund toilets through all of the slums than it is to live with the economic problems that, you know, lack of sanitation causes. And so that's the big bet they're making. And if they can pull it off, then it'll result in toilets for like 8 million people pretty quickly. <laughs> wow. So there's a few things there that I just absolutely love. Like one, that black soldier flies are a part of the process and that you're, you know, you're not relying on, as we saw during the COVID, the early weeks of COVID, people are like, well, shit, if we can't get the chemicals that we need to process our water, we are fucked here in Australia because <laughs> we were like, you know, we were looking at what does it mean if we don't have liquid fuel because we were like eight weeks out from running out of liquid fuel here in Australia. We're like, well, that means all the water sanitation stops and like people went for the first time, oh, oh, we rely on, oh, oh, shit, we don't make it here? Ah, and we, you know, so relying on chemicals and relying on this constant supply chain of things that you have to get in to make yeah. it work, um, that's just another factor that is vulnerable. But to, you know, rely on something like a black soldier fly uh, yeah. just to do its natural process, that's pretty fantastic. But it's totally amazing in that if this works, it's not just 
for sanitation. This is something that will change the waste industry globally. Mm. So it's a massive problem that they're trying to solve. Yeah. And sanitation is one of the blades that you can use to have a crack at it. <laughs> What's interesting though is that you know you talked about if if you can make it and ten dollars per head. I'm guessing what that is that annually or pretty much annually. Yeah, that's think, extraordinary. That's right. So what yeah. you're saying is like if the Kenyan government. And it's a really interesting way of looking at the problem because there's all those all those problems we were talking about before, the health effects, the education effects, the the productivity effects, all these things that affect an economy because the toilets aren't clean and because people don't have access to sanitation. If we then go and create something that people may think is unrelated, it's a real kind of freakonomics kind of way to look at it, you know? Yeah. If we go and build this thing over here, that's going to take care of all this and it'll be cheaper if we build this yep. thing over here. It'll pay itself back through everything yeah. else in the community and that's a fascinating way, fascinating yeah, so way of looking at the problem. It results in yeah more economic prosperity mm. than what the cost is to put it in place. <laughs> yeah, because I was thinking awesome. about that. You know, I spent some time in South Africa and I remember driving uh, through the, the townships and the shanty towns outside of Johannesburg and they just go for miles and miles in every direction and you just look and go, where? okay, what? I don't know how what <laughs> you know yeah it's staggering yeah so like a really cool way of thinking about the problem so yeah we, we do some yeah as i said like high risk high return stuff with yeah. them and then we do some low volume high return stuff where we're funding you know water aids model is that they have local partners that implement in each of the countries that they're in and their mm. team in each of those countries in some cases we're going direct to those local partners and we're funding them directly, but their budgets are anywhere from a million to $5 million. So, you know, last year we donated 5.85 million Australian dollars. If we gave all of that to one of those organizations, they wouldn't know what to do with it. Like it's too much money to be able to, to operate in an efficient manner. Yeah. So we kind of have to fund them with, you know, much smaller amounts of the overall portfolio that we're distributing each year. So you mentioned East Timor, Papua New Guinea, other parts of Southeast Asia. Why is it important for you as an Australian person to help countries like that? That's a really good question. <laughs> for me, what, what I realized, what I was really kind of intrigued by was, you know, particularly in Southeast Asia, when you go from one country to another, you cross an invisible line and where you were born on either side of that invisible line, that will ultimately have a huge impact on what happens for your whole life. And that seems really crazy. And then you kind of play that out, whether you're born in Australia or, you know, the USA versus Mexico, like that has massive, massive impacts on what happens. And to me, that inequality just seems like something that we can solve and we can improve over time. And so that was kind of what I was really intrigued by. How do we shift the needle? How do you give someone the opportunity that we're given by being born in somewhere like Australia or in my case, the UK? I'm listening to this really interesting book at the moment by a woman called uh, Maria Konnikova and she talks all about decision-making and um, how luck plays into success and probability, et cetera. And she talks about, you know, this is a woman who's won and she goes into poker. It's a long story. As far as, you know, assessing human human decision-making, she found that poker, particularly Texas, No Limit Texas Hold'em was the perfect way to study human decision-making processes. Yeah. And this is a woman who's won, you know, massive poker events and still to this day says, no, the luckiest I've ever got was that I was born where I was born to the parents I was born by and that my parents came to America. 
And I had nothing yeah. to do with that. It all happened before I was three. But that was the luckiest thing. And I can, you know, 100%. I was born white, male, straight, into a middle-class family. Totally. Into a safe country. I had nothing to do with any of those choices, yet it has absolutely changed my life. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. And this company that we've created wouldn't exist if I was not born into a somewhat wealthy company that has a good safety net because I wouldn't have been able to take the risk that I could to, you know, knowing that I could fall back on not a wealthy family, but, but a family that would support me yeah. and I could move back in with my parents and we have that safety net. Exactly. Yeah. We have that safety net <laughs> yeah. from the government as well. So it's yeah. just, that is something that's a massive, massive privilege. <laughs> yeah. It's, fa- it's fascinating that you talk about, you know, this invisible line and you hear astronauts talk about it, you know, as soon as they get into orbit and they look back and go, oh, hang on, there's no lines down there. There's no borders. That's no, we're, we all share the same little bit of atmosphere. And it's a really up there. You can see how little it is. It's tiny. It's it's extraordinarily thin. Our atmosphere. Yeah. And they go, what? Oh shit! We're all one. <laughs> These, you know, full on mega American, you know, chisel jawed, superhuman, mega math <laughs> PhD guys go, whoa! And they, this is called the overview effect. They have this mind popping moment where they suddenly realise that we're all one, and um, to help someone from a far away, far away country is to help your neighbour. Yeah. It's really, really interesting. I can only imagine what it was like for you, but can you just take us through? I want to know, as someone who makes toilet paper, when did you first realise at the start of this COVID pandemic that, oh, hang on, people are just going nuts for the bog roll? <laughs> did you figure out why? Like, I'd love to know, like, what, what is it and why toilet paper and what did you guys do? Yeah. Wow. Like, oh my God, <laughs> what, what a thing for a toilet paper company. But yeah, so that, that's a really good question. Like, why did it happen? Do you want me to talk about like what it was like on our side first or, well, or well, like yeah, I, why, I mean, what's the cause of it? Well, <laughs> talk about what it was like. I mean, it was just a regular Tuesday, I'm sure. And you've got the little notifications <laughs> from Shopify or whatever. And it was then, a regular Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was actually a Tuesday. So we kind of had seen you know, this run on toilet paper in Hong Kong and then Singapore and then Japan. And we looked at it and gone, wow, like, isn't that incredible? That would never happen in any of the markets we're in Australia, UK, USA. And then, you know, sure enough, the last couple of days of February, I remember it was over the weekend, like our sales were just like higher than what they should have been over a weekend. And I was looking at it going, oh, we're doing some really solid sales. And then I think we kind of hit like 2x sales. And then on the, the Monday, we hit 4x sales. And then on the Tuesday, we hit like 12 times what a regular day would be. And at that point, social media, we were just getting pounded by mentions and comments. And you could see like, because people were sharing photos of empty toilet paper shelves and everyone was going, where do I buy toilet paper? Our customers amazingly were saying, buy it from me, gives a crap. They sell sustainable products and 50% of their profits get donated. Like, why would you buy toilet paper from anywhere else? And so we just had thousands and thousands of kind of social media mentions that kind of essentially sent us viral. And we, our traffic that day just shot like absolutely through the roof because we were probably the only place that people could reliably buy toilet paper at that point. And so I think at our peak, we were selling about 28 rolls of toilet paper every second, which, you know, on a regular day would actually make us a larger toilet paper seller than any of the major supermarkets. Wow. Like we, were, we were really moving serious volume, which was incredible, but also creates this huge challenge because when we're selling that quickly, we don't have a good line of sight on our inventory and we're kind of relying on 
some assumptions around whether, you know, how much bamboo versus recycled we're selling. And if those assumptions are wrong, then we can sell out of product quite quickly. And so we kind of left it as long as we could. We woke up the next day on Wednesday morning and it looks like we're going to do like a 30 to 40 times day of sales. So more than a month in a day, which was just mind boggling. So we, we said, we've got to turn it off because we've got subscribers and business customers who we promised to make sure they never run out of toilet paper again. We have to make sure that we can you know, supply those guys through whatever happens next. And so we, we turned our website to sold out. We put on email sign up so that people could sign up and find out when we were back in stock. We thought we'd get you know, a few thousand people signing up for that. We ended up with half a million people signing up to find out when we were back in stock, which was incredible, but terrifying because we obviously couldn't email that whole email list and say, Hey, we're back in stock because we'd sell out straight away, regardless of how much product we had. And so I think our team at that point was like, you know, we're an online toilet paper company with a distributed team. So we're all working from home anyway. This is the moment that we've been training for, for like seven years. This is our time to shine. And if we dig deep now, we know that come June 30 with our big end of year donation, we're going to be able to have a massive amount of impact. And so our team got to work thinking, you know, how do we get toilet paper to the most people possible? And we basically ended up repacking our big 48 roll boxes into two 24 roll boxes to double the number of orders we could send out. We hired and trained 25 freelancers to help answer customer inquiries, which tripled the volume of customer inquiries we could deal with. And we basically worked with our warehouses to figure out what the maximum limit of orders they could send every day was. And then we slowly emailed just enough people to take the warehouses to their limit every single day for six weeks. And that got us through that in the end, like over 600,000 people on on this waiting list, which was amazing, but exhausting. Like the team was just totally knackered by the end of it. And we, we kind of worked a lot of late nights. We broke like our inventory management system. It's linked to Shopify. We were pinging the Shopify API too many times in a minute that it just couldn't, like it stopped working and it would shut off. And so none of the orders were flowing through our system. And we had to like solve all these problems on the fly to yeah, make sure that we were shipping products. But who would have thought like once in a lifetime moment, toilet paper is the hot product of 2020. No one could have forecast it, but it actually makes sense when you dig into why did this happen? It's pretty interesting. So what happens is the toilet paper market, there's the at-home market and the away from home market, like offices, you know, schools and the away from home product. When you think about it is pretty crappy quality. It's like one ply. It's not very nice. So that has a different distribution system. It relies on, you know, salespeople selling to businesses, whereas the at-home product is entirely different. It's, you know, fluffy, usually like two or three ply, and it's sold through supermarkets. And so people realized they weren't going to be in offices anymore, so they needed to buy more for their homes. And typically, you know, those two markets are roughly the same size. And so when all of the away-from-home market dries up, everyone starts buying more for their use at home from supermarkets. And so supermarkets run out because demand spikes. And then once they run out, there's empty shelves, people take photos of it, they you know, post it on social media. And this product that has previously always been a commodity becomes a scarcity. And now people are fearful that they will no longer be able to buy you know, what is a necessity in their eyes. And so something goes from a commodity to being a highly in-demand product, the rational thing to do is to buy whatever's left. <laughs> you know, And so that's what creates this vicious cycle, which you know, started from a rational place of, hey, I'm not going to be at the office, I need more at home. And eventually becomes, you know, this vicious cycle of, oh my God, there's no toilet paper, I have to buy it when I see it, because that's the rational thing to do when there's a scarce item. So it's pretty, 
crazy. But the the kind of missing piece of the puzzle there is that you can't redistribute the away-from-home products into the at-home market because the distribution channels aren't set up and they don't talk to each other, those two markets, very easily. And the machines that produce the crappy one-ply stuff, they can't produce the fluffy three-ply stuff. And so you can't just retool and move all of your production volume over to that at-home stuff. And so that's why it took months for it to settle down because you have to like slowly tool up and release more volume into the market. And in our case, you know, we ramped production up to 200%. So we were producing twice as much as what we had before and just trying to get it out to people as quick as we could. (laughs) What a story. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What would you say to other people who, who run businesses about those challenging hours and days about what's, I mean, you could have just, you know, shoved it out the door. You could have just shut everybody off. What's the payback for the effort to give everyone that? Because there's a particular customer experience you have with who gives a crap. There's a, as I mentioned before, there's a particular language, a particular tone, a particular personality of every single piece of communication, even down to what's written on the box. All right. Like even in that stressful time where you're, you're, you're sleeping on, you know, the floor and, and running on fumes, why is it important for you to maintain that even though you could have just as easily not and just here's a product, fucking have it. You could have. But you, <laughs> why is it important to maintain that communication and maintain that language and that, you know, that user experience? I think the way that we think about that is that the currency that we trade on with our customers is trust and we need to always maintain that trust. And so... Every decision we make, we're thinking through the lens of how will this impact our customers and what does this do to take us on our mission to you know, make sure everyone in the world has access to a toilet. And so in that instance, we, we put ourselves in the shoes of our customers and said, if I'm not a subscriber, but I buy regularly and I'm not a subscriber because I travel regularly and I don't know what my usage is, I have anxiety about a subscription, whatever it is, but I buy regularly... I probably have a lot of affinity with this company and I want to be treated well by them in this instance because I've supported them for a long time. And so we had to figure out how do we support those returning customers who aren't subscribers and we kind of put them in you know, priority in our waiting list. And then our new customers, we had this amazing moment where all of these people were finding out our, about our brand maybe for the first time and we wanted to show them what our regular delightful customer experience looks like. And so we felt like we had this obligation to both our returning customers and our new customers to try and create a customer experience that in a time of a lot of anxiety and fear and and stress was hopefully not going to be another 
touch point that was giving them a negative experience. And so we kind of took it beyond that as well and said, the reality is that we sell usually 24, 48 roll boxes. So most of our customers will have more product than what they need to get them through the rest of the pandemic. So this is also a moment to have a little bit of empathy for what's going on around us, for our neighbors who maybe don't have toilet paper, maybe don't have flour, whatever that is. Let's just make sure that the people around us are okay. And as our customers, you probably have enough product to be able to share. So we'd love it if you could what we call ply it forward and, and put some out like on your doorstep or give it to your friends, give it as gifts because in this moment you're holding what is what has become a luxury product um, and you've got a lot of it because you're one of our customers. Yeah, my <laughs> wife absolutely did that. My wife, you know, we because like I said, we we Tetris it all over the house and um, Audrey absolutely in those first couple, like like the end of March, right, everything was really getting really shut down in Sydney and the March start of April, Audrey was like, couple of this neighbor, a couple of that neighbor, a couple of people down yeah. the street. It was amazing. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah. And, and you're right, you know, because we live in a, I'm grateful, you know, I've worked hard and we live in a part of the city where people do okay. And one of my neighbors is, you know, they're in the finance industry. This is a person that can buy anything, right? A roll of toilet paper to them was the most valuable thing <laughs> yeah. that existed. And the bunch of flowers that we got back, it was like, it was like a $60, $70 bunch of flowers, right? <laughs> because they were like, I can't thank you enough. Yeah. And it's fascinating, you know, when you think about supply and demand, you know, it's that Jordan Balfour thing, you know, I'll give you a check for a thousand bucks if you can just sign the piece of paper. I don't have a thousand, you know, can I sell you a pen? You know, it's like the, the thing that you don't have becomes the most valuable thing in the world at that point. Yeah. That really blew my mind. It really, really blew my mind and it really made me think, and it made it all, I guess, you know, for those people, it makes all think about the, the work that you do. If you don't have access to a clean toilet, if you don't yeah. have access to a place where you can poo and wee away from where you eat and sleep, what that does for your day. And suddenly for that morning where you don't have toilet paper, you are, oh, this is somebody's life. Somebody grows up this way. This is how someone lives their entire life. That's it. So that was kind of what we were trying to get to. The big picture here is we're freaking out about toilet paper. <laughs> a lot of people don't have access to a toilet, let alone toilet paper. Yeah. So yeah, it was kind of a, a real moment of, and in many ways, COVID sort of has been this real moment of sort of equalizing and having everyone in that same situation. So yeah, it was. we felt like it was a, a great time to have a bit of empathy for what was going on close to home, but also further afield as well. You go out of your way to make sure it's a sustainable product. And in this time when we're all trying to find the incremental ways that we can improve what we do, a percentage here, a percentage there, if we do that on 20 things, that's 20%. Tell me about the impact of regular toilet paper manufacturing compared to your brand. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So I think when we kind of looked at manufacturing and, and transport, we realized that manufacturing is where the bulk of the carbon footprint comes from. So transport's fairly light and manufacturing's, you know, the most carbon intense part of the process. And so when you look at why that is, it's typically because you're cutting down a tree, you're milling that tree into chips, and then you're trying to turn those really hard chips into a really soft material with like high temperature and, you know, water and chemicals and all sorts of stuff. And that's quite an intense process doing all of that to then get it into, you know, the soft paper. And so if you can fast track that process, which um, recycled paper is the best thing for that because you're taking a soft paper like office papers and, you know, textbooks, and then you're pulping those which are already soft to turn them back into a, another, you know, soft paper. And so that's a much more carbon 
efficient process than going from really hard timber into into that paper. But we realized, you know, recycled is always going to have a bit of stigma to it. I remember growing up with some really scratchy recycled toilet paper when I was a kid. And there's going to be some people that will never get over that despite it being the best product that we have, you know, except maybe for a B-Day, which is probably slightly more efficient or a lot more efficient, but there'll always be some stigma. And so we said, what can we do to create a more premium product? And so the bamboo was the kind of step up for us. The bamboo, again, is quite a hard product, which means that it requires that more intense pulping process, but it's also a super fast growing crop. You know, it's a grass instead of a tree. So it grows really quickly. When you're cutting it, it regrows. So you're not having the same you know, negative impacts on the soil and around kind of plantation. And it's also got some really great kind of natural pesticide kind of components to it. So you don't need to like use as much pesticides and so on in the growing process. And so bamboo is better for the environment than cutting down a tree, for example. And I think trees have got lots of awesome uses, but paper's, paper's not one of them, but not, not quite as good as the, the recycled product because that pulping process is still pretty intense. And so that's where we've tried to focus on, you know, let's try and switch people from you know, what they're buying from supermarkets now, which for 98, 99% of people is going to be made from a tree over to something that's made from a more sustainable raw material. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's something you're going to cover in shit and then put down a... Flush down the toilet. Flush down the toilet. <laughs> like, yeah, literally. <laughs> like, really? Yeah. <laughs> and that's not what trees are made for. They're not no. made to be flushed down the toilet. No, they're not. In perfectly good drinking water, mind you, in Australia. <laughs> never forget. Yeah. Like, it was the, the so, first meme I ever saw sometime in the mid-90s or the early 90s was the, the African kid meme going, hang on, what? you've got so much clean water that you can shit in it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For real. What's it like when you're, when you're trying to work in a company? Like you mentioned earlier, it's, it's puppies and feathers and ducklings. Why are we so afraid to talk about this thing that we all do at least once a day, probably twice if you're healthy. Why are we so afraid to talk about poos and wheeze? I don't know. That, that is a great question. And it's probably not one I've thought that much about. I guess it's conditioning, right? Like we're brought up to believe that it's icky and, and gross. And honestly, like it wasn't until I became a parent that I you know, started talking more about poo because that's just part of being a parent. You know what I mean? And I run a toilet paper company. So like, of everyone, I should probably be talking about poo more than anyone else. <laughs> but I think it is, yeah, it's a great question. I'd love to know the origins of that and why it's so tricky. Yeah. But there's definitely, you know, there are societies that think about that really differently. You know, in, in Germany, there's kind of this ledge on the toilet where people can inspect what they've done before they flush it away. And that's a way of staying healthy. I think in Japan, that's like quite common practice as well. So it's definitely, you know, it varies a lot from country to country. And you think about America where people don't even use the word toilet and it's completely different again over there compared to what it is over here. Yeah. So I'd love to, I think that'd be really interesting to kind of try and understand that and study it a bit more. I remember the first time I was in the Netherlands and I went to, I, I sat on one of those toilets. It's got the, the ledge and I did not know what it was on about. And then it's like, oh, right, it is. <laughs> like, all oh, right, there's carrot and then there's corn and there's, oh, okay. Oh, maybe I need to, that doesn't look good. 
you know, because it's 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 instant feedback as to how healthy you are, and and yeah. it's the great leveler. You know, you we see Scott Morrison on the news on the every single day going, I won't be taking questions at this time. But let's be honest, two and a half hours ago, Scott Morrison was sitting on the toilet flicking through his phone like you and me. Uh, there's no <laughs> doubt. Every single person you see on telly, they poo. There's a book. There's a kids yeah. book. Everybody poops. It's amazing. <laughs> that was honestly when I before I worked for myself when I did job interviews. Whenever I got nervous, I'd always think, you know everybody poops like this person has also been to the toilet today and that for me was always the great equalizer that helps me like regain my nerves <laughs> they're just a human they're just a human like you and me and i think it was the dalai lama the his holiness the 14th dalai lama who said when it comes to humans I don't know, i'm paraphrasing here but he's got this great quote you should find it and put it on your roll he said if if you really want to think about it the only thing humans actually create is poo that's the only thing we really create <laughs> it's true it's what we make. Our bodies make it. There you go. There it is. Yeah, we should. We've 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 got like a mobile site, so when people are bored on the loo, they can jump on our site, and it's got lots of fun toilet facts. So I'll add that one in there. <laughs> you should go find it. We've got a great book at home. One of our mates, she's a zoologist, and um, she wrote a book called "Who's Poo Are You," and it's yeah. a it's a way to tell which native animals have been around um, by looking at the poo, um, and awesome. it's great. It's really, really yeah. great. It's how we found out that there was a brush tail and a ring tail possum in our backyard. Oh, really? Yeah. So they have different. They have different poop. Different wow. poop. The one I love is the the wombat. Are you across this? This is amazing. The intestinal tract of the wombat has like a ribbed kind of shape to it, which pr- produces a square poop. And that was this massive inspiration for how to produce square objects on production lines because no one had been able to figure out how to make a square object from soft material in an efficient way until they studied the wombat intestinal tract and were like, oh my God, this has got a huge application in production. So yeah, there you go. I did not know that part, but the other thing I love about the the cubic wombat poop is that the wombat will only poop on a rock or a log. It will perch itself up. (laughs) And poop, it won't poop on the flat ground. It'll poop, perch itself up on a rock or a log. Amazing. <laughs> I guess it's so the poops don't, I don't know. You know, but when you're Australia. a burrowing animal, wombat wants to know, you don't poop where you eat. No animal poops where they eat, you know, uh, except humans in desperate situations, <laughs> which I think is what, uh, what this whole thing's about. How can we, uh, as Australians with, you know, with flushing toilets, how can we think about what impact it does have when we go to the toilet how can we think about that a little differently uh going forward to me that's like this big question around how can we think about the small actions that we take in everyday life a little bit differently and so i think it's not just about going to the toilet it's about what we're buying at the supermarket which brands we're putting our money behind and particularly now like in the internet age there's more choice than ever and so we can we can vote with our dollars more than ever before because there's thousands, ten, you know, millions of new brands that are out there that didn't exist 10 years ago thanks to the internet. And so for me, that's about being just slightly more conscious with the everyday decisions that we make because we have that opportunity now in front of us. And if we do that, then these small brands like us, like where we were six, seven years ago, they're going to become the new big bands that one day be in place of the Kimberly Clarks and will be the norm. And so I feel like we have a responsibility as consumers to go out there and find these new cool products that align more closely with our, with our values and our ethics. And if we do that, then the world's going to be an incredible place. There's usually a case in economics where the incumbent players, and you mentioned one then, Kimberly Clark, the incumbent players, they feel this 
you know, it becomes an economic choice rather than a, a moral choice. They see their market shares getting eroded away and they look down the chain and they go, where's that 5% going? We missed that 5%. What's that product doing? Oh, hey, Jenkins, <laughs> go and make one out of bamboo. <laughs> How does it make you feel that that is going to start to happen as you grow, as you start to chomp market share away from these massive players? How does it make you feel that they will probably copy you? Excited. That's amazing if that happens. You know, we think about the impacts that we can have as a business. You know, obviously there's kind of the donations that we have, there's the impacts that we can have on our team, but a big part of it's the impacts that we can have on other businesses. And so that's going to be businesses in our category. If they change because of what we're doing, what a massive win. You know, if someone who's got 40% market share changes their entire product range because of us, a tiny little company, like that's more impact than we'll be able to have by ourselves in the next you know, five or 10 years or whatever that looks like. But on top of that, we want to show that business models like ours can be successful because we believe we can solve this sanitation problem, but there's a lot of other problems out there that our business will never touch. But if we can show that our business can be successful both on the kind of impact side and also on the financial return side, then we'll get more entrepreneurs and more investors creating businesses like ours that will go out and tackle those other problems. And so that's kind of you know what we talk about as being good influence in our business and that we want to be able to influence both with the incumbents but also new startups and, and incumbents in other categories as well. I, I would doubt that there is a startup, particularly a product startup today, that hasn't got a give built into their business model. If they want to, you know, that just seems to be like more and more that it seems to be like the give has got to be there. Yeah. And I think that's super exciting. It feels like that give or that ethical piece, that's almost where sustainability was at 10 years ago. And if you rewind 10 years, 2010, you know, Tesla had just IPO'd and was worth a billion dollars. Carbon neutral was like something that a few companies were doing here and there. And things like Keep Cup and Swell, they were like, you know, renew- reusable bottles and coffee cups. They were in their infancy. And now, 10 years later, Keep Cups and Swell, they're the norm. Reusable bottles are the norm. We see Tesla now, like by far and away, the most valuable car company in the world. And literally the biggest companies like Apple, you know, Nike, they've all got zero carbon plans because they see that the environment and profits are actually going to be interlinked over the next, you know, however many years. And it feels like now with things like Delete Uber and kind of these exposés on toxic kind of work culture, it feels like ethical business and finding businesses that align with your values is kind of where sustainability was at 10 years ago and giving back is a massive part of that. So that makes me super excited about what the next decade is going to look like if we can have the same kind of run that sustainability did. This idea that you don't vote every three years, or in our country, I can't believe it's only three years, you don't vote every three years. You vote every single time you spend a buck, you vote. Yeah. And I think that, you know, over time, this is a little bit controversial, but we've seen this kind of shift of power from, you know, the church and the queen to, you know, politicians and now we're seeing that shift of power come more and more to businesses and for consumers that then means that every dollar we're spending actually becomes a massive vote you know both metaphorically but but more and more literally as well yeah the market does decide we still we're still driven by was it keynesian economic theory but the market 
ultimately is just a, it's a collection of decisions and collection of a, a reading of the current emotion of, you know, a vast community of people. And, you know, I look at something like they sponsor the podcast and I, I use them. It's, you know, doesn't mean that why I'm saying it, but uh, someone like PowerShop, right? I know how much it costs to buy a 30 second ad during the bachelor. All right. It's fucking expensive. Okay. <laughs> so you don't get to buy that kind of TV time unless you've got a pumping business model, which is built on what's the best prices we can get you at the same time as giving you a hundred percent, hundred percent certified carbon neutral power that they're doing so well that they can afford that. It's, it's like, wow, that's a lot of punters who've gone, yeah, nah, I want to turn my lights on and know that I'm not adding to the problem. And yeah. that's a huge deal. I want more transparency, you yeah. know, like th- through all parts of the business model. And that's awesome. Like that's super exciting. And that's going to like ultimately hurt the bigger energy companies and they'll have to figure out how they do their job better to satisfy those customers that, you know, that growing group of customers that will switch because of that. Well, I think what you said before is absolutely true. I don't care how big a company you are. Ultimately, you will see that your growth is so completely tied to the external downward pressure of the environmental capacity to sustain that growth. You will absolutely have to adjust because you cannot have profit if you don't have customers. And if your customers have got nowhere to live, you've got no profit. (laughs) Yeah. It sucks that we have to wait for that to happen, but that's what's going to happen because that's where the pressures will make it so. And then it'll be a race to how close can we get to zero? How close can we get to zero as far as impact goes? And that'll be the thing that people market themselves on. It sucks that we have to wait for it. Yeah, but amazing when it happens. And, and, you know, I think like we've got a long way to go to get there. To getting to zero is going to be really hard, but what what a cool problem to solve. Like that gets me really excited. And that's one of the things that, you know, we as a team really rally around those kind of big, hard problems. But there are, yeah, they're going to take a lot of work to get there. So what's on the whiteboard? What's in the top right-hand corner of the whiteboard that got written during a big team <laughs> weekend and has been st- sit there for about a year? What's the big who gives a crap? Where Where's the compass pointing? What, what we're doing next? Yeah. Yeah, so we're kind of, we're going to launch some new products for the first time in like five, oh, five years, actually. Um, so that's going to be really cool to kind of get some new stuff out there and see how people respond to it. We're going into new markets. So we're now, yeah, Australia, USA, UK, and now sell more outside of Australia than we do inside Australia, wow. which is awesome. But we just turned on Europe. So we've got kind of, yeah, all Euro free shipping and got into Sweden. So we do Krona, which is like super cool to have like a, you know, two new currencies coming on in the last month or so. Um, so we're going to keep doing those things and, and see how we go. But ultimately where we're trying to get to is that Kimberly Clark scale. We need to be like a tens of billions of dollars of revenue company in 30 years time to solve this problem. And we want to do that before 2050. So that's kind of what we're on track to hit. Do people use toilet paper in China? They do. (laughs) Yeah, that's so. China and India are actually two of the fastest growing toilet paper industries because you've got the rising middle class that, you know, toilet paper becomes part of status. Mm. And so everywhere else in the world, toilet paper sales grow at the rate of population growth. But in economies that are pumping, emerging economies that are coming up, you see much faster growth rates as, yeah, you reach more people than ever before. So that's a weird toilet paper fact. The secret economic indicators of toilet paper. I love it. 
I absolutely love it. Well, man, like whatever I can do to help, you know, like I said, I wipe my butt with one of your roles, probably one of the first packs you ever put out because of Mel because she's on top of shit and she knows what's going on. So whatever I can do to help, mate, please let me know. Yeah, whatever thank I can you. do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to say a big thank you to Mel. That's awesome. Yeah. But yeah, I guess like the big kind of takeaway is that if everyone used our products, we could solve the sanitation problem like really fast. <laughs> And so that's kind of the mission we're on. So we've got to find more butts to wipe and that's how we're going to get there. You know what? Everyone that's listening has a butt and I know everybody poops because I read the book. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully just one butt, everyone listening, but maybe more. I don't know. I've got a little kid. It's a two for one at the moment. There's a a fair (laughs) bit of butt cleaning. I I don't clean my, I clean someone else's butt. Uh, yeah, yeah, not the bigger one. She's figured that out. The little one. Yeah, it's true. Most people will be responsible in some way for someone else's butt on a varying degree. Yeah, at the yeah. start of the life and then at the end of the life, you're, you're responsible yeah. for someone else's butt when they're quite old as well. That's a, that's a whole other story. You're an absolute legend. Thank you so much for taking time to speak with me today, mate. No, thank you. You're the best, brother. It's been a pleasure. That was Simon Griffiths. You can find out more about Who Gives a Crap and their extraordinary work at whogivesacrap.org. Thank you uh, very much to Simon and the team for making the show happen. I'm thrilled to get him on the show. He's a, a great Australian, a great human, doing great things for many, many people around the world. And, and have a think about it. When you flush six perfectly fine litres of drinking water down after a shit, think about what fucking life we live and how privileged we are because that my friends is the epitome of that is the the pinnacle of civilization all right that's enough water that could keep a person alive for a week and you chase some poo down a tube with it life's amazing and we are very lucky to live it you can find Simon, as I said, at whogivesacrap.org. Thank you very much to Rachel Barrett, who helped everything happen today, my EP. Thanks to Andy Ma for cutting this up. Thanks to Mike Mills for the music. Thanks to Haley for all the socials. I'll see you Friday. Think of me while you poo. Think of Simon while you poo. Think of what it would be like to not poo where you poo. <laughs> Buy some toilet paper from Simon. <laughs> all right. Until we speak on Monday, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. 